Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Analyzing Everton, um, our first in a while. My name's David Hughes and I'm joined by Josh Williams. Josh, for once I get to ask you, how are you, mate? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say then, mate, it's good to be in the... Um... The visitors here, sort of thing, which you've been for once. It's been it's been quite a while now. Yeah, it has. Yeah, you're the you're the away team and on the home team today. Um, yeah. Because yeah, we haven't had a we haven't had an analyzer Everton show for a few months now um, for various reasons. Obviously, one of the the main reasons being that there's been no football. Um, but we have been doing some other podcasts between us. So obviously, we've been talking every week. But it'll be nice to nice to focus back on Everton and. You know, we appreciate people obviously reaching out as well, saying that they've um, they've missed the show a little bit and wondering when it's back. We don't know if it's going to be a regular fitting. Um, we'll have a conversation about that, but it's back today anyway, and we'll get to look back at well, basically the three games since the restart. Um, three fairly good results, to say the least, and Evan are looking a fairly decent side, and maybe even a chance of. You know, creeping into those European places um, in the final few weeks of the season, but we won't get ahead of ourselves. So both both me and you, Josh, will have a look at um, we'll have a look at Liverpool, Norwich, then Leicester City, which was we're recording on Thursday. It was last night, and then maybe we'll just have a quick glance ahead to the fixtures to come um, and how we think Everton will fare in them. Um, so we'll we'll start with the Merseyside derby, which feels like a lifetime ago now. Um, but before before this game, you know, there, there was nerves because Everton finished um, before the pandemic after getting beat four 0 by Chelsea and well beaten at that. So uh, Liverpool were coming into it obviously in the hunt of looking to secure the Premier League title. Um, felt like they really wanted to win this one. Um, it looked like Everton could be in trouble, but I don't know about you. General thought, I thought Everton were fairly good on the day and good value for the draw. Maybe even a little bit disappointed that he didn't pick up all three points. Yeah, I thought in, in terms of entertainment value, I didn't think it was the most the most thrilling watch. Um, I think we we actually previewed it, didn't we, for the analysing Anfield show, and mm-hmm. one of the things we thought would would have a bit of an impact would be the lack of fans, but it. it didn't really seem to play much of a part. Everton was still, um, you know, equally as hungry. I'd say without the ball, players like um, Charleston comes to mind, uh, James Coleman, um, Tom Davis. They were all really kind of like, I don't know, snapping at, snapping at the heels of Liverpool players as as you'd usually expect at Goodison Park. You know, despite the lack of fans. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I think Everton's tactical approach on the day, what Ancelotti did in comparison to the. To Marco Silva's approach at the first half of the season, you know, it was um, it was chalk and cheese, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
it was a really strong def- defensive display against the you know a well-oiled attack. I know on the day Liverpool were missing one or two key players, which maybe hindered them a little bit. Um, but it, it was looking back now, it was probably an indication of things to come in terms of the dis- defensive display. And you talked about some of Ancelotti's tactics on on the day there. I think for me there was three key points. I don't know if you agree. Um, I thought were crucial in terms of getting the results on the day and it was you know a much deeper defensive line there was very little space in behind um, you referenced that Anfield 5-2 game you know, that's really what killed Everton um, you know, they got done too many times with balls over the top uh, and behind especially in the right back area uh, but that didn't happen this this time you know Everton were deep and allowing very little space in behind uh, I thought another key element was pressure on the centre-backs as well. You know, whilst Everton weren't exactly pressing high up the pitch, you know they were keeping the centre-backs busy with the head down and that really guarded against those, I guess you could call um, Liverpool long balls. You know They've they've kind of um, made them their own this year in terms of pinging them over the top um, and they've been pretty successful with it. So, so keeping the centre-backs busy was important. And then, as you said again there, um, strong 1v1 battles. You know, uh, Coleman was a player you just mentioned, and for me, he was man of the match on the day. I thought he was so you know tenacious in in his duels against like Sadio Mane and and others really. And those 1v1 battles, I thought, were really key um, in, in in the success on the day. I guess. Yeah, I was really impressed with Coleman to be honest, because you know without watching Evan every single week, I was under the impression. Kind of that he was, you know, regressing sort of thing, especially physically. But and he might, he might be Devon, but he certainly applied himself in this game. Didn't give Sadio Mane an inch, um, mm. let him know he was there. And it, I, I do think it goes back to that that kind of like schoolyard thing that you learn as a as a kid when you when you're learning the, the the game is, you know, just win your individual battles, and it'll go a long way to securing the results. And considering Mane was arguably Liverpool's most important player on the day, considering Salah was out on the opposite side and Robertson was out at left-back. You know, Mane's going to be quite integral there to, to Liverpool's penetration on the day, considering Salah's not running in behind. Robertson wasn't running in behind. And I just think Mane wasn't really wasn't really allowed to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, looking at, the, looking at the last match, the 5-2, you know, that was, um, I think, Arco Silva went with a back five, didn't he? Um, I think Liverpool posted an expected goals on the day of about two point five, according to according to Statsbomb. Um, whereas I think at Goodison Park, uh, more recently, I think it's one of it's one of the few occasions this season that Liverpool have been kept to an expected goals four of of below one. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't tend to happen very often. That it happened at Watford. Obviously, we knew we know what happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, Three 0 defeat. It happened away to Atletico Madrid. Again, a loss. Um, it happened against Manchester City, funnily enough, although they did win 3-1. Mm-hmm. But I guess the point that I'm getting at is it, it doesn't happen very often at all. It, happened, it also happened against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and Liverpool won on the day that time by with two set-piece goals. So, yeah, it's, it takes some doing, but, you know, Everton put a shift in, that's... To say. Yeah, yeah. So I um I had it down as Liverpool's joint second lowest um expected goals for uh 
across the season, certainly in the Premier League anyway. Uh, I think the, the lowest was that Wofford game that you touched on, but it was just three shots on target faced, one of which was a free kick um, and no big chances up to the find, big chances conceded either, which is pretty rare against against Liverpool. Um, it was just a really, really good defensive performance. And I wrote a piece where they said it, it, it seemed as though um, Ancelotti maybe watched what happened in, in Silva's game in Anfield and, and, and kind of learned from that. But in reality, I think that's a disservice to Ancelotti. I think he, you know, he's more, he, he doesn't need to look at the mistakes of other managers to kind of formulate these game plans. And um, yeah, I just thought he, he got spot on on the day. Uh, I know Liverpool had well over 65% possession, but it felt as though that, as though that was by um, design. And you know the, the fact that they created so little, I think, back reaffirms it was a it was a good decision. Um, I mean, you could actually actually go on to say, couldn't you, that Everton probably could have won it. You know, their XG on the day was one point four. So, I mean, you are talking small margins between the two sides. Um, but certainly late on, they had a couple of really good chances um, that caused Liverpool problems. Yeah, I mean, it, it particularly coincided with Dejan Lovren getting introduced mm. to Joel Matip. Um, Lovren's one of those types of defenders who, um, one of those types of players who I who I personally believe you you, you can't really. It's difficult to say because obviously trophies have been won on Anfield, but it, the the types of players who, um, no matter how well your performance is, all the things you're doing right. It just takes one of those kind of like error-prone players, them them players who have just got a random mistake in them for no specific reason to completely cost you the results. It's why, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that virtually every month I tweet at least once that you're only as good as your players. It just seems to be a recurring <laughs> theme and that'll be because I've just watched a match where, say, for example, David Luiz has fell over or gave away a penalty or something like that. So I think Everton really, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but they really seem to play on them immediately. Um, yeah, I think Richarlison's naturally playing on his side anyway, but Lovren's the type to, rather than accepting defeat and appreciating that I'm not going to win this aerial duel, I better retreat and hold me position and, and cover. He is inclined to just think I have to win this battle, and when you're coming up against Richarlison and Calvert Lewin, especially in the air, um, that's probably not going to happen. And as a result, you're going to end up on your backside and go out of position, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I agree. It's um, it, it's an underrated strength, I think, of a player um, to be able to know when they are going to win or lose, you know, a one v one kind of duel or battle. I'll touch on it a little bit further down the line when we get to Leicester City and Tom Davis. But um, you know, sometimes it's just about applying pressure rather than trying to win it there and then. You know, just slowing an attack down or making an attacker take. Another one or two extra touches, which then brings in other players, other defenders around, and um, yeah, it, it 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 did fittingly coincide with Lovren coming on that Everton kind of um, produced these couple of moments near the end where they they probably felt a little bit unfortunate that they didn't have a goal. But I suppose that you always have that threat, you know. You can when you're in this. Um, I feel like there's so many sides who who sit in these kind of um, defensively sound structures against top sides but they lack so little uh, in the attack that it's almost a attack versus defence 
exercise with with no goal threat, but with Everton, I think they've got two um, two attackers who work very hard without the ball, um, both always pressuring defenders in possession, making runs um, in behind into the flanks. And they always give you these options and they, they can often create something out of nothing, you know, a long ball over the top and they'll create a chance. And that's what we saw against Liverpool. And I think that's maybe why Everton can play in such a defensive way with those two working so hard up top. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely spot on. I think, you know, the best teams out there are able to offer, are able to present problems that are to their opponents, not only with the ball, but without the ball as well. Um and I think Everton, Everton are doing that. And I, the, the way you're labelling um, their approach there is as defensive. Um, and I understand why you're saying it, but I think to an extent, it, it's, it's. Um, I wouldn't say it's defensive. It's, it's not. It wasn't technically a low block, really, was it? I don't no, think it every, every other week, Everton kind of go with the mid block sort of thing. And I think Wolves do similar. And I, I wouldn't overly call it defensive. I just. I'd almost call it sensible in, in some ways because it allows you to, if, if you're keeping the mid-block at least, you know, it allows you to, if you do regain the ball, you are at least within touching distance of the final third to, to immediately progress towards and hopefully score a goal. Whereas, you know, some of the teams that are inclined to employ a low block, say, for example, I don't know, Newcastle comes to mind, but it's not too problematic for them because of how, how quick and how capable yeah, maybe oh, a Palace, but even them, the reliance on a Zaha. In fact, we probably saw that at Anfield a few days ago. Mm. Without without Zaha to carry them up the field, Palace was simply too far um, from Liverpool's goal to the extent that they didn't take make, make a single touch in, in the opposition, opposition area. So, yeah, I think I think what Ancelotti's doing is he, he's really good at getting the balance. Yeah, yeah, I think um, maybe I was doing them a little bit of a disservice there. Um, yeah, you you probably argue instead of being defensive, it's it's tactically shrewd, I guess. Um, yeah. Because the, it would have saved no purpose to try and go toe to toe with Liverpool. Um, I'm glad Everton. Yeah, yeah, as Marco Silva basically did. Um, yeah, so I I, I do agree. Um, but I think his tactics on the day were were spot on. Uh, it's funny that you you said about Pal. The reason I mentioned Palace was I was thinking about that Anfield game and. Uh, yeah, I know they have Zaha, but w- without him, and even with him to an extent, it's it's so lopsided that um, their counter attack, isn't it? It's it's all just going through one man. Now, if you nullify him, you you nullify the attack. Whereas I think with Evan, you've you've got two really difficult um, attackers to try and defend against, uh, and that's one thing we did say, didn't we, in the preview to this game on the Analyze Anfield show? We said it, even if we expect Liverpool to to win it. We knew that Liverpool's defence wouldn't have an easy ride because of um, facing two difficult attackers as opposed to maybe one, um, which sounds so basic, but it's not really, is it? It is hard to hard to defend against, uh, given the kind of profile that both players are. Um, but in all, I thought it was a really good point, and it, it it's kind of set up um, what we've seen, what we've seen since, um, and just a few days later. If we move on, Everton's travelled to Norwich. Um, just quickly on Norwich, Josh, what, what's your opinion of them just in general before we discuss the game? Um, frustrating. 
<laughs> I think that, I think that um, there's a type of team that you you want to admire, but you just you just can't because the, the, there's absolute zero pragmatism, um, and I, I think to to a degree you need it in football. You need some, you know what I mean. You can't you can't just play complete utopian football with players like that in the Premier League. Um, and expect to get results, and, and I think I just think they're a bit they're a bit too nice, a bit too inclined to try and play perfect, um, mm. and it's just unrealistic. And I I, I totally understand the, the perspective of sticking to your brand of football and um, maintaining your principles and stuff like that. But you, you can doesn't you can still do that while also being a bit realistic about your chances and um, you know causing causing problems for the opposing for opposing teams and I think a, a lot of opposing teams that have faced Norwich have, have generally had quite an easy ride really. Mm. What about you? Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I agree totally. I, I you know, I, I could kind of appreciate what people were saying, especially early on in the season. You know, they had a really good result against City where um you know a lot was made of them, you know, pressing and getting that city and then you know, it was kind of like it, the results aren't going the way, but they're doing it how they want to. You know, they they're deploying a philosophy, and it's really good to see. You know, what what a great side, even if they are bottom league, and that just seems to wear very thin with me for the same reasons you've just said. You know, I I started thinking about the the actual importance of getting results, um, and I still think you can pick and choose when you're in Norwich's position. I think you've got to find a way find a way to pick and choose when you're really um deploy 100% of this philosophy. You know, I think if you're playing a Bournemouth at home, you can probably implement your game a little bit better than if you're playing a, uh, I don't know, Chelsea away or something. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, it's resulted in them kind of going down without much of a fight. You know, they're going to be the first team, I think, to be confirmed relegated. And they've never really looked like they've had any chance of staying up. Um so yeah, I'll be honest. I'm I'm the same. I'm just a little bit frustrated, and I think the the plaudits they've had have been a little bit um, a little bit exaggerated, shall we say? Yeah, uh, I, th- I think the, the the good teams in the in in world football really tend to have you know various layers to the game and a little bit adaptable according to the opposition that they're facing, while also maintaining the principles that they're so set on. Mm. But I think Norwich, I, I just way too far one way um, without imposing any kind of like game to game type changes um, mm-hmm. yeah a little bit disappointed to be honest I thought that at least have scored more goals by now but I think even that the junk bottom for yeah yeah well I mean it's a good segue I suppose to move on to, to the Everton game because it was it wasn't a great performance really from an Everton point of view Um they were the better team in terms of possession play, but didn't really create a lot. And I mean, this was three or four days after the Liverpool game, which is the first game back against you know the now league champions. It was always going to be a really tough game, not just physically but mentally. And I think there was a little bit of tiredness in this one. Um, neither side had a, an opt to find big chance, and the XG finished. I think it was point nine four Everton uh, and point for against um so it was it was really you know that's that could quite easily be in a, a nil nil another day um i suppose that the, the positive is 
know Everton only allowed one shot on target, and I know we we know Norwich aren't great uh, in attack, but it was another strong defensive display and another clean sheet, which. You know, even if they decide that you come up against that, great. They're, they're still important to try and get under your belt, aren't they, Josh? You know, um, kind of good defensive displays and, and clean sheets. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there that there wasn't a great deal going on in the match and things like that. But I think at the same time, it's it's maybe the type of game that under Marco Silva, Evan would have lost maybe. So that's right. That's fair to say. Well, they did at all. They they actually won the few. Yeah, it was two nil. Yeah. Shame, shameless, because we uh, we basically we did this show uh, that week where we were like, just can't see uh, Evan getting beat, and this is hopefully Silver kind of yeah. you know getting himself back on. I on remember track. that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so and then we ended up losing it two 0 good isn't? Yeah, but I think I think this Everton team are going to be more well suited to when the match is tight like that, um, having the ability to snatch it. Whereas mm. I think. I think under Silver, especially, it was it was more a case of, you know, I don't know to get to, to get a win. I felt like it had to be more of a perfect day. Whereas I think mm. I think under Ancelotti, especially with the set pieces that I'm sure we're going to get to, mm. um, they, they have the capacity and the add those layers to just kind of snatch your results if you like. Yeah, that's it, and you know, I, I agree. I think with Silver. Um... I mean, the way, the way some games went for him wouldn't surprise me if he, he would have went on and lo- lost it because I do think he was a tad unlucky. Um, but equally, I, I, I think he would have struggled to go on and win it. Um, but obviously, Everton did. Um, and it was a it was another set-piece goal. I'd, I'd, I've wrote, wrote about it this week with, you know, um, tilt my hat a little bit to David Ancelotti, I think he prefers rather than David, but I can't say I know for sure. Um we had seven goals from set pieces now since Ancelotti's arrived. I think they've Everton scored the most corners now this season, um, and it, it, it you know it the same proved decisive. I've oh, just sorry, I've got <laughs> don't forget we dogs just parked in the background. Yeah, just for but... the listeners, that wasn't Dave. That <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do enjoy a set piece goal, but not that much. Like um, <laughs> it wasn't yeah. me either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is we've been laughing, haven't we? How this is a. Uh, this is we are missing the studio a little bit in terms of having to do this from home, but yeah, just getting back on back on track. Um, yeah, it's it, it could be a nil nil on the day. Set piece really important, and you know, I think we're seeing how important set pieces can be, aren't we, Josh? You know, we've banged on about them many a time, but there's, I think there's still a few people out there who maybe don't see as much value in them as others. But um, as we saw here, it was it was the difference between one point and three. Yeah, well, I think that the negative perspective that stems from, you know, the the days of Pulis really making use of them and Allardyce really making use of them. I think they were generally perceived as a an attacking strategy for a team who actually can't attack. Mm. But it's it, it's being you know as we get on more modernly used as just another weapon for for even the best teams. Um, I must say I wasn't overly surprised. Everton managed to score against Norwich from mm. this from a set piece, considering as you say the record since Angelotti's came in. Especially considering that I think I think Norwich were marking zonal on the day as well, because mm. Michael Michael Keane seemed to seem to come in completely unattended, and Norwich also have the um, the lowest aerial win percentage in the league, whole division, um, mm. with about I think they tend to win about forty four 
0.5% of their aerial duels, which I think offers an insight into... I think they're quite a short team, I think is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, football is a low-scoring game. and You know, if you, can, if you can take the lead or if you can snatch a goal from a set piece, it's, it's likely to go a long way towards securing the result. Um, yeah. Yeah, it just comes a different way of winning the match. Yeah, I was just going to say, I must admit, um, I didn't... When I, I wrote this this piece where basically I, I examined Everton's set pieces since Ancelotti's come in and tried to just highlight a few key staples uh, from the same, I must admit I didn't include the uh, the Michael Keane versus Norwich header just for the reasons you state there that I do think whilst it's there's been some really good work by Everton, uh, Norwich make it that little bit easier for you. Um, yeah, I, w- I will say as well that w- one thing that coincides with this is the fact that Evan have decent set piece takers. Um, you can't really, well, you can, but you, you can't do this sort of thing as well without a, a player who's got a decent delivery on him. And I think you've got Lucas Dean who's left footed, and I know he doesn't play all the time, but Sigurdsson, you know, he's good for something. <laughs> he's yeah. right, isn't he? So, um, yeah, you can, if you can make use of that, you know, it'll get results. Yeah, you're right. You know, I've got good set piece takers and also got you know threat in the air. Um, I mean, I just double checking it now to make sure it's still the case. And yeah, in terms of um, the most headed shots attempted in the Premier League this season, three of the top five are Everton players. Um, Calvert Lewin's joint top with uh, Jimenez at Wolves with 22. Then you got Richarlison 21, Yerry Mean and 19, and then uh, Burnley's Chris Wood 18. So. And, and, you know, big lads as well, good leaps on them. Um, they, they should be more of a threat. Might, you know, Michael Keane's decent in the air as well. Um, so it, 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 it's really it's really a shame that we, we haven't really saw Evan taking advantage of these um, under silver. And it, it, it's a little bit of a, a detriment to his legacy that we never saw the better record because he had these players at his disposal. Because um, now many games were often in the balance for Silva. You know, he could have tipped the scales in his favour, having converted a few more of these chances. He hasn't. Ancelotti, of course, knows um, how important they are. He's got his son, you know, design and the set pieces. And we're seeing things... Um, in fact, you know what, Josh? I'm going to give you some credit here because... Um, on the back of the West Ham game, we had a conversation. I don't know if it was on air or just between us. I think you, it was, yeah. Yeah. Was on, yeah. And you'd said, didn't you, that it looks like Holgate is um, going for a flick on for yeah. Calvert Lewin. Um, yeah. yeah. And I agreed. And then I've had a look at it a lot more in detail and wrote about it this week. And, um, you know, that's happened a few times now. And funny enough, if you think back to that Liverpool game, the chance that Everton had late on from the corner was a Holgate flick onto Calvert Lewin at the back post. Um, yeah. That ju- just goes wide. So that's just one of the things Everton have been doing. That's that's working really effectively, I guess. Um, because the benefit of the same is people people might not think it has that much of an impact, but you'll be surprised. And maybe if you watch clips back now after me saying this, you'll be surprised how much that initial contact, no matter who makes it causes lapses across the penalty area in terms of who plays a marking or just, you know, in terms of marking a specific zone. There's, there's an eagerness to start pushing out straight away, uh, obviously to clear the danger. And that just initial contact seems to cause a lapse of concentration, which can be exposed. And 
Everton are obviously doing a good job of doing so. Yeah, I, th- I think what you just mentioned there as well about the near post flick on. Um, I, th- I think one of the most frustrating things that a football fan has to deal with at the match is when a corner delivery fails to beat the first man. Mm. I think it, it, it drives everyone mad. But a, a lot of the reason it hits the first man is because plenty of teams try to use that near post flick on because it, it, it does tend to, if you can do it, if you can achieve it, it does tend to really impact your, your, your goal scoring because um, I remember seeing the numbers on this, but I can't remember what the numbers were offhand. Off but it, in terms of corners that have a near post flick on successfully, the number of goals you end up scoring from that I think is quite quite significantly higher, but I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. You know what? I, I, um, I wonder if I referenced that in my in my piece this week. I, I, I think I chose not to, but some of the snippet I used from uh, used in that piece, I took from a paper produced by one of stats stats perform scientists, uh, Paul Power. It was back in twenty eighteen. Um, in short, yeah, flick it, flick on actually increases the chances of a of a goal being scored from a corner. So I mean, if you yeah. can find a way to introduce them, then it's good. Yeah, there was a there was a moment earlier in the season as well that I, I think I remember writing about when Yeni Mina scored two against Waffle mm. um, in the same match, both from set pieces, and both set pieces were virtually identical in terms of a corner being delivered over hit really towards the back post. Mm. And I think I think I had a look at Waffle's goals conceded, and a few weeks earlier they conceded a goal at the back post from a corner against Burnley. Um, so mm. maybe something that they spotted. Um, obviously, Mina's about think, six foot four or something, isn't he? So, mm. and it, it ended up working for them. But yeah, that was it. Was, it's just something that I think it's good to see Everton start doing. Yeah. Well, just uh, just I'm sorry if anyone finds anything but Everton boring. But just quickly, just did you catch the um, Chelsea West Ham game last night? I caught most of it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see West Ham's first disallowed goal and then the? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I couldn't believe they let themselves get uh, done in the exact same way. For anyone who didn't see or watch it, um, it was basically a, 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 like Josh just described for the Mina goal. It was a, a I guess it was a, a the ball same play as well. Yeah, the exact same player, exact same one v one, and it was a ball that was put towards the back post, and um, obviously they scored initially for a little bit of a scramble. It got ruled off VAR, and then. Um, yeah, and then the exact same thing happened again just before half time. I mean, the only thing I would say is that maybe it's difficult from a defensive point of view to try and adjust your setup in game when you're being, you know, drilling a specific um, zonal or marking setup. But I don't know, surely you've got to find a way to change that, in my opinion. Yeah, I think at least you can anticipate the ball towards the back post. You should, mm. you should roughly then be able to know where the ball's going. Even if it's just a goalkeeper, and yeah. the goalkeeper can be on his toes a little bit more towards that, you know, okay, this is probably going to go towards the back post here. So if it is, I'm getting a punch on it. Mm. But I don't, th- I don't think he flinched. I don't, don't think he moved. So yeah, it's, it's disappointing. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back to Everton anyway, yeah. So it was a it was a good win on the road because there hasn't been many of them this year. Um, home form's been pretty oh. solid. Go on. One more little point that I want to make as well on the Norwich game. Yeah. Um, Calvert-Lewin actually had seven shots. <laughs> Did he? I don't he? know if you wow. were aware that. He had no, seven I shots didn't. in the game, yeah. Seven shots? That's, <laughs> that's probably more than Everton's average. For, no, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit there. But, <laughs> I mean, what does it... What's average for the season? I, th- I think most of them were, were outside the box. Like I'll, I'll double check that now. But yeah, when I was watching the uh, the highlights back and stuff like that, he, he seemed oh, yeah, heavily he pulled to the extent that I, I had to go and check. Seven shots, yeah, four of which on target. Yeah, just just for just to um, try and reiterate why that's quite surprising to us is 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 average this season is about two point seven five. So yeah, um, I should say three of them came outside the area. Mm-hmm. Um, but that means that means four came inside. So yeah, that's interesting. What did you have? I mean, it, it, you probably argue that he should have gone the score sheet on the day. Actually, um, looking at his xG, I mean, I'm looking at Y Scout, so we don't love their xG model at times. But it's 0.78 uh, for the day. That's uh, weird. That, that's that's actually double on the stats figure. Well, the stats have got 0.36 so <sighs> this is why we have issues isn't it with these uh, with the models but yeah why yeah. your data matters mm. but um, anyway look it was a it was important to get a win good win and then and then we will move on to Leicester which was probably compared to the two games prior was probably a lot more enjoyable for from a neutral point of view uh, and felt like a really big win as well uh, against Admittedly, Leicester are kind of in free fall a little bit, um, but I think in those games, if you're not on it, it's very easy to allow a side who maybe have been low on confidence to find uh, get back in the groove. Uh, I thought in the second half we saw Leicester looking dangerous again, like the Leicester early on in the season when the tails were up. So um, it was important that you you, you kind of. You're, you're really at it, even if your opponents aren't as good as they, they have been. Um, but at first glance, Josh, you know, we look and we have to rely on White Scouts again here because Stats Bombs stuff wasn't available at the time of recording, which is now. Um, but <laughs> at, at, at a glance, we've got Everton's XG4 at uh, just under 1, 0.98, and then Leicester's at 2.16. So you, you kind of say, just looking at that alone, before we delve further, it seems like it was a fairly lucky win for Everton. Yeah, I suppose it does by that sense. But I think once you get the the timeline, especially, I think you, mm. you get a bit of insight into what the story of the game has been. And mm. I think um, one of the most underrated aspects of football that is going to sound really basic when I say this now, but... It's the perks of taking the lead. I, th- I think that the team that takes the lead, especially if you get two goals in 10 minutes, 
it's it, mm. it's massive in terms of how the rest of the game is like to play out. Mm. Um, and I, I find it hard to believe that Leicester would have posted, you know, as many shots as that and and, and expected goals of that amount if you know for the entire match Everton were were kind of still trying to find the net themselves, if you like. But the you know they had no real need to once taking the lead to that extent, two goals in in the first fifteen minutes of the match. Um, and I think it's I'm happy it happened to be honest because I've watched a few of Leicester's games since the restart, and it, it's really frustrating how inclined they are to to wait. They're really inclined to wait and and kind of like who blinks first sort of thing. Higgins mm. um, Wofford first game back, the first goal was in the ninetieth minute. Mm. Um, then he played Brighton and drew nil nil. Then he played Chelsea and got beat one nil, and. The first goal was scored after the hour mark in that game. And then, you know, they, they go into the Everton game. And I, I, I expected them to just start equally as, um, I don't know what the word is, just flat. Yeah. A little bit. Just mm. conservative. Yeah, conservative a little bit, yeah. Um, and I'm glad that kind of Everton almost punished them for it and kind of, you know, demonstrated that you, you need to wake up a little bit here because. I feel like since the restart, Leicester have been just too inclined to wait to see how things play out rather than, um, you know, controlling their own destiny, if you like, as deep yeah. as that's right. <laughs> no, 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 that's right. Um, and as as I mentioned and as you touched on a little bit there, you know, that XG doesn't really tell the whole story and it's just another advertisement really making sure you, you kind of contextualise any numbers you do use because... I think what you're saying there is spot on, Josh, in terms of the mindset completely changes. When you've got a 2-0 lead in the first 15 minutes, you are not you don't need to go out and um, go out and attack. You can kind of pick and choose your moments while sitting solid um, in a good defensive shape. And I thought that's what Everton did. Um, and to be honest with you, if you actually look at the XG timeline, it was fairly even up until, say, the last half an hour anyway. And I, I know Everton have been boosted by by the penalty, which accounts around well, roughly zero point seven six, I think it is. But um, yeah, it's it, it. As I said, at a glance, you might think that Everton were were really lucky and well beaten on the day. But the goals have come really early, and that kind of changes how how you perform. Um, thoughts first half. You know, everyone was saying that Everton by far the better team in the first half. For me. I actually thought it was fairly even. It's just for the change, Everton, you know, managed to get the goals. Um, they haven't always done that. They did do this. Time. The first goal was a really good goal. Um, obviously, Anthony Gordon's first assist as well. But I think that's important because a lot of players get hyped. And if it doesn't happen straight away, people start, you know, I wouldn't say they get on the back, but they start losing the, um, the excitement over the player. Yeah. But, um, I just say losing, losing faith in the players. Yeah, so. that's yeah, that's probably a better term. Losing faith a little bit, um, but you know, he, he played really well. I thought. Um, obviously, got the assist and then uh, penalty converted two 0 up. And as I said, I thought it was fairly even half time. But you you'll take an even game with a two 0 lead, and then things changed at half time. Um, I mean, there's no denying the introduction of of Madison in at number ten created a more fluid and dynamic Leicester in possession um, and he looked I, I, I don't know what you thought Josh but he, 
from what you did see, it looked like the um, the Leicester kind of early in the season, and they looked confident, and obviously got a goal back as well. Yeah, well, they did. They basically looked like looked like they've woken up really. Mm. Um, as I said, they've, they've been quite pedestrian to be honest since the restart. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think they benefited earlier in the season from that that absolutely mad nine nil win over Southampton. Mm-hmm. Because it, it just kind of presented them with the platform to like, you know, up the utmost belief in what they're trying to do, basically. So they start mm-hmm. just playing without thinking, attacking without thinking. And I think, you know, whatever Rogers did at half time, whether it was, you know, a word in, in the ears of the players or Madison's introduction or whatever it was, it just got them playing with a bit more intent. I, I think that's what they've been lacking. To, to, I keep using these words, conservative, pedestrian, Black and intense. It's it's just the way Leicester have played since, and we we saw a bit more of what we were used to, um, but just without, you know, without a player who can really put the ball on the back of the neck. Considering Vardy just doesn't look himself at the minute. No, he doesn't. No, you're right. Um, yeah, in terms of so when 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 they kind of come come into the game was as we just touched on half time and. You know, two two changes really brought them into it. It was it was in Inacho coming on, Madison coming on, and then the the switch from what they started up, which is a four one four one, which uh, is pretty standard for Leicester. They then go to, I guess it was a three five two with Madison in at number ten, um, and yeah, it caused. I thought Madison was really good in terms of drifting in between. The midfield and defence, just in the, those pockets of space, there picking up the ball and almost working as you know that term an advanced pivot. I thought summed them up well, um, and he was making stuff happen. But what was really impressive, and lots of people have mentioned it since, um, was how Ancelotti reacted to it. Um, I think Rogers considers himself as a bit of a shrewd tactician doesn't he Josh as you'll know um, understatement <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah understatement of the, of the week I think um, yeah. I think he fancies himself a little bit and I, I understand you know this was a good move by him but I thought Ancelotti very quickly realised what was going on and, and he found a, a response to it um, the response was to Richardson come off he picked up a knock but this change was going to happen anyway um, he brings Tom Davis in um, as like a holding midfielder just to sit in between the defence and the midfield. Um, initially, the Everton goal was a 4-1-4-1, but then when Mina comes on, it goes to a back three um, with Gordon, like I suppose, as a as a 10, with five in the middle and then Calvert-Lewin up top. And, you know, what I will say before I open the floor to yourself, Josh, is just on, I wrote about this this morning and I thought... I I'll be honest. I expected the data to to kind of say how uh, how Davis come on and won a, a ton of defensive duels, loads of ball recoveries. Madison's input kind of dropped off a cliff after the first fifteen minutes. This is what I was expecting to see from what I watched, and the data didn't really back it up. You know, Madison ended up uh, attempting something stupid like forty passes in the second half, which is which is fairly high for. Just one half on the pitch. Um, he still saw a fair bit of the ball, even with Davis on there. But what I found watching the game back was Davis just did things where um, where he may have not won the ball. Kind of the stuff that we were talking about with Lovren earlier, where 
he wasn't always winning the duel, but he was doing enough to force Madison into a, a, another action before he could yeah. shoot or pass the uh, pass it on. He he seemed to have to take that extra touch or he yeah, might like have a bit of an, like a bit of an obstruction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that's not what that's the perfect term for Davis's performance yesterday. He was just an obstruction. Um, there's a few times Madison beat him with a bit of skill, but him having to take those few more touches to get past Davis or around Davis opened the door then for other Everton players to quickly close him down, forcing them to snatch a shot. So I thought it was a a good performance that maybe might not show up in the numbers, but in terms of the the things that can't be quantified in numbers, I thought it was really good in just in just making Madison think that little bit more, make him work a little bit harder for his passes, and ultimately, you know, force him into 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 moves or decisions that he probably wouldn't have had to do when Davis wasn't on the pitch and we didn't have someone in that void in between the midfield and, and defence. Yeah, I remember um, I don't know, I'm not sure if he still does it, but I, rem- I remember Mourinho used to um, used to wait for his for the opposing manager to make his subs before Mourinho would make his own. Um, and that was largely because he'd wait to see what the other managers changed before then basically counteracting those changes. Um, and I think Antiochus in the similar mould in terms of obviously being very good at, you know, managing tactics on the fly sort of thing, not necessarily needing days to prepare and, and, a, and a perfect match scenario to be successful. He, he comes across as quite a problem solver. Um, typically Italian, I suppose, in that regard. You know, Italian managers tend to be, you know, rather than having a set brand of football and a set system, it's it's it kind of is like a game of chess, where um, you're constantly trying to outwit your opponents um, and cause strategic problems, if you like. Mm. Whereby, you know, you're highlighting this a strength of your own while masking your flaws and highlighting the weakness of the opposition and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think Ancelotti's clearly a very good problem solver. And I think the positive around what we're seeing is that if he's that type of manager, he's likely to be even better once he's got better tools at his disposal, basically. Um, because the, the, the more elaborate tools you've got, the, the, the better you'll be able to solve problems, the more problems you'll have to answer for in your, in your squad, sort of thing. So um, yeah. I think it's it's going to be interesting to watch moving forward the, the, the way Ancelotti uses certain players and how he applies their little, you know, the, the, their specific qualities to, to match scenarios. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Because, uh, I, I mean, I agree totally. You know, I, I thought Davis was was really, you know, hard working. Um and, and and did a, a disciplined job but the reality is that he's probably not the best at that kind of role um which is why I think Ancelotti deserves the credit because he's he's obviously put him in there um knowing he'll do a former job but it would be interesting to see if Ancelotti had his own preferred player doing that role how much how much more impact it would have had, you know, maybe him winning a couple more of those one v ones. Um but I just I, I was just really impressed. It's a, you know, with that and the Liverpool game, one or two others, I just think you've seen the benefit of having a having a well well educated and manager who's, you know, played uh, sorry, he's overseen so many games at top clubs and just can see these things unfolding. I think Silver's yeah. I think uh, I think Silver's kind of um, problems was he would he was a bit naive sometimes. I feel like he would wait 
too long to counter that uh, change by Rodgers, whereas Ancelotti was really proactive, uh, making his changes in a timely manner. And I think you look back on that game now, I think that was probably the decisive difference between, you know, Evan getting getting the win or the draw, or, you know, maybe even losing. You don't know how it would have went had, had Leicester found an equaliser. Yeah, I think you can you can quite clearly see, I think, um, in his last couple of weeks, just just why he's been at the top for so long. Because I think he's um, he's he's got that blend of obviously being very very tactically capable, but he also blends it with um, you know the whole the leadership qualities he's got. He's he's very calm and he's very clearly very good with people. I can't think of many players in history who fell out with him. I remember when he left Real Madrid. You know the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo, Sergio Ramos were disappointed that he left, mm-hmm. and I think. You know, in terms of a management perspective, they're just the vital qualities when you're in charge of a team, you know, being able to manage people, but also being able to manage chess pieces, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I remember when when he faced uh, Rafa Benitez in a, in a Champions League final in, in 2005, and this was obviously a, a long, long time ago. This is one specific little tactical adjustment that I remember him making very late in the match. He, he brought on a... Um, Serginho for Clarence Seedorf. So he moved away from the diamond and Serginho mm-hmm. moved on to play wide left and really hugged the touchline. Um, but it caused problems for Liverpool because Liverpool had Smitze playing out wide and to the left of Smitze, Jamie Carragher. Now b- both of those players having already played about 75 minutes um, but tired. And even when they're fully fit, they're not the quickest. <laughs> um, so Sergio just immediately started to cause Liverpool problems, and Rafa eventually had to move Steven Gerrard to right back to the other. Oh, but yeah. I think Rafa, I think Rafa's since spoken about about that change and said, you know, Ancelotti got to made the, the absolute correct substitutes at the time. And I think that that's the kind of thing we're going to see moving forward. Ancelotti just, as I said, tactics on the fly and being able to problem solve mid match. Yeah, I think that's that sums up really well, actually, that story. And um, just imagine in general, I, I, you know, I, when I look back, I, I wasn't, it's not that I wasn't, well, we talked about it, didn't we? I, it's not that I wasn't convinced by um, by Ancelotti, it was, it was. It was exciting, but I just wasn't sure whether it was the right thing long term. Um, but, you know, it, although it's still early days, you know, I've had my eye wiped a little bit. I think it, I under, underestimated some some facets of his of his management um yeah and the, the impact he's he's having i guess yeah i think i think one thing on that some managers are inclined to become outdated um mm. in, in their own methods i don't think Ancelotti is um i think i think he's well um, he's not outdated but i wouldn't say he's particularly modern but at the same time because because of his met his methods as particularly his way with people, I don't think he'll ever become outdated, Ancelotti, the, the, the way certain other managers will, like, say, for example, Louis van Gaal, for example, maybe mm. he, I think he'll become outdated with his dealing with people as well as his tactics. Mm. I think Ancelotti's still very clearly got the tactical nous about him, and he's, he's still got a, a modern way of dealing with, with personalities. So, yeah, and, and I don't think he's it, it's an appointment whereby he's, he's passed it by any means, and I don't think he's proven that. Yeah, yeah. His uh, his man management is phenomenal, and you know that's what that's if you if you hear a lot of um, 
you know, top class managers or previously top class managers who are maybe on the way down or already out of the game. I thought you used a really good example there in Van Gaal. Um, but they always talk about how the, the player power has changed, um, changed how football's working and the dynamics of the dressing room. And that's why I think having that personality to to be so liked and be able to adjust the way you are with each individual player is so important. I think it's why Klopp's so successful. Not that I don't think Klopp's a great tactician. Of course he is, but I think is the way he, um, the way he is with the players, he gets that extra 10% out the all when I play with him. And you know, I think although Ancelotti's behaviours and his character is different to Klopp's, he's a lot more reserved. I think he is he's the same. And I agree. I think that's why we won't see him, you know, struggling in the modern game uh, and why he's he's still doing so well, I guess. Yeah, I think another another name you could probably add on to that is in, in terms of the outdated side is, is Mourinho to an extent because I think he's still very much got the tactics about him mm. and the strategy about him. But what, what he's become outdated in a little bit is his dealing with people. Um, it, it, it does come across a little bit prehistoric when he when he singles out players and, and really publicly bashes them. Um, it, it just doesn't feel like... The, the way of doing things anymore and, and when, when someone does it now it it, it does seem really um, old school like I remember yeah. I remember spoke about what Duncan Ferguson did to uh, Moise Keane was he at the, mm. at the time I think we we deemed that a little bit you know obviously understandable why he did it and I, I think a, a few a few coaches who've stepped up from being former players recently I think Stephen Gerrard's the same he's been prone to really stating the truth in press conferences and things like that and you might get a reaction out of some players but as I said from a modern in the modern game you, you don't usually tend to see it as much mm, yeah I, I mean I totally agree and I was tempted to use the Mourinho um, example but the reason I never is because obviously that's Everton's next fixture um, which is a, a coincidental segue uh, in, in terms of moving on um, just before we do, yeah, really good results against against Leicester. Um, but yeah, Everton's next fixture is Tottenham away, and I looked at Leicester and Tottenham before, be, obviously uh, before yesterday's game, and I thought if the if they were to win them, which were obviously two really difficult games on paper at least, especially this one away from home. You know, I think Everton are, are, are fancy themselves against most most sides at Goodison, even without the fans, but. Away from home, the record isn't great. If they can, if they can get a win in that, then I'll look, I'll just run through the final five fixtures. After that, you've got Southampton at home, Wolves away, Aston Villa at home, Sheffield United away, and Bournemouth at home. Um, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what you're thinking, Josh, but currently two points off seventh. Now, I've I've haven't got a chance of maybe sneaking Europa League this season with that running. What position would you have to be in for Europa League? Is that seventh this year? So I think it, there's the variables that impact it. My understanding is you've got uh, the outcome of the FA Cup, uh, which for me, I just I basically back Man City in any domestic competition. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the way it's going. And you, but you've got City, United, Chelsea and Arsenal. So you've got teams who are most likely, maybe not Arsenal, um, but you've got four teams and three are probably guaranteed Europe. Um, so that would take it to seventh, I think. Um, but 
if City's ban is upheld, um, it drops to eighth, which means you could yeah. actually be in York for finishing eighth. I, I think that's definitely a possibility. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. looking at this table, I think, I think from seventh to fourteenth, that group of teams could literally end up virtually anywhere amongst each other. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't fancy any team to drop below 14th for obvious reasons. There's a seven-point gap to 15th. Mm. And I wouldn't expect 7th to catch 6th, obviously, mm. uh, because, again, there's a six-point gap, I think that is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those teams are just completely... Uh, and some of them are in, are in best form. And others, Sheffield United in particular seem out of form. Um, I know Burnley have, have still managed to get wins, but they're really strapped for, um, for numbers, I think. Um so yeah, it's, it's definitely a possibility for Evan. Um, I think they're averaging about around 1.4 points per game this season, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, by that logic, that equates to about another eight or nine points until the end of the season. Um, whether that's enough, I don't know. Maybe Ancelotti will need to find another win from somewhere. Mm-hmm. But look, looking at those fixtures, though, it, it, I think it'll be quite interesting when, when Evan face um, Southampton and then a week later they face Wolves because I think those two teams, they ha- they have similar, um, similar people in charge in terms of Nuno and Hasenhut. They're both really good managers. Basically, they're both good on the mm-hmm. tactic side, but they're also both good on the people side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got similar squads in terms of quality. So it'll be interesting there to see to see how Everton do against Southampton and Wolves because I think they're two clubs who are. I don't know, in and around the same level of development at the minute. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe goes a little bit further along under Nuno. But if Everton, you know, managed to get, say, for example, four points out of those two matches, I think it really bodes well cons- looking ahead to next season, considering Ancelotti's been in charge for, well, technically seven months. But um, if you exclude the, the coronavirus outbreak, you know, he's, he's only really dealt with his players for about three or four months now. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, right. Uh, I look at, <clears throat> we should probably flag to people who maybe, a lot of people will know this, but also there might be a few who take a casual interest in the rest of the league and might see Southampton as an easy game. But, um, you know, Southampton have basically been really good. Uh, well, maybe that's a stretch, but they've been a good side basically since that 9-0 defeat to Leicester. Um they're yeah. difficult, difficult sides to come up against. I expect that to be a, a fairly tough game, actually. Tottenham, and you don't know with Tottenham. I have no idea if that's going with that. I think Evan have got potential to beat them, but they just the record against top six sides away from home isn't good. So um, it's, I think that's going to come down to belief. Um, Wolves, yeah, I think that's a tough game away from home as well. Uh, but then you got Villa. You know, I think Villa could be on the way down at that point with three games to go. Uh, I, I personally think the I think the bottom three are already down for me. Mm, Even though there's a point in it, so that they're not already down, obviously. But I I think the bottom three will will stay as it is personally. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. And if you look, Evan, they've got two of that bottom three in the last three games, along with Sheffield United, who I've had a good season, but it kind of feels like. One, the, the wheels have fallen off a little bit. They haven't been able to replicate the intensity without the fans. And two, although they love the idea of Europe, and I'm sure they wanted to get it, I think they won't maybe have that same drive to get there because it was all about you know securing 
uh, Premier League survival. I think at the start of the season, they've they've done that and and more really. So I think that there's probably a sense of if they were to miss out, miss out some Europe, it wouldn't be the end of the world, and a, a mid-table finish would be a good result for them. Um, so you might catch them basically with with the flip flops on a little bit. Um, so you got potentially three yeah. easy games to finish on there. Yeah, I think Bournemouth and Villa are basically a given. Um, mm. I've had a little look at them this weekend. I think particularly Villa are just shocking on the defensive side. Mm. Um, and Bournemouth, Bournemouth can't seem to find a goal. Um, I think they've scored, I'm not sure, you know, maybe maybe two or something like that since the restart. Um, and when, when, when Everton faced Sheffield United, I th- I'm inclined to say set pieces won't really be any use. I, I don't think the I think you very, very rarely can see from set pieces Sheffield United. Mm. I think they're also decent from set defending set plays, but um, I fancy again we're going back to Marco Silva, but I, I, I fancy Ancelotti to to have a chance against Mourinho. Whereas I think if if Everton was to play some sort of high line against the Spurs team, as Silva might have, I think you know Spurs have got a bit of pace up front, so mm. it might have caused some problems. But yeah, it's going to be an insistent. Running like um, one thing on Southampton as well, I should mention decent team, good team, and that well coached. But the um, they basically either win or they lose. Um, so that might be an interesting one from an Everton perspective because they've lost four matches, uh, through four matches all season. Mm-hmm. Um, they've lost the same number of games as Watford have, but they've also won 12 times, which is you know, top 10 standard, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll uh, it'll give you something to watch anyway, mate. Seeing as your um, your season's finished now, isn't it? <laughs> your uh, your big one, your big ones in the bag as a fan. But um, I think that's probably a good a good time for us to round the show off. Um, again, thanks for everyone who's been reaching out. We were unsure whether we were definitely going to bring it back, to be honest. Um, but we've had so many people asking about the show that um, we've kind of done it. For, for those people I guess um, we don't know if we're going to be back next week or if, if we're just going to do it semi-regularly we'll we'll have a chat and we'll, we'll we'll see what the what the fallout is from this show and see if people enjoyed having it back uh, so do let us know either way but thanks for listening Josh thanks as always no worries mate thanks for thanks for getting me on yeah and we'll um, we'll hopefully speak to you all again soon cheers You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.